Japan had a special situation when they had the second generation, the PDC technology was, uh, you know, on the way to be phased out. So therefore, the Japanese, uh, let's say, operators have uh, an urgent need to find a new technology. So 3G technology just came on time. So therefore, I think our focus at that time from Arizona side to say, let's help the Japanese customer to speed up their 3G rollout was very right. And uh, that was an exciting time for me when I moved uh, to Japan 2004. Welcome to another episode of Transmissions from Tomorrow, the show that gives you an inside route to the people driving the digital transformation of business and technology in the world of telecommunications. And I'm your host, Des Blanchfield. And today I have the privilege of having Ms. Sheng An Yu, the Solution Line Head of Distributed Cloud for Ericsson Business Area Digital Services with me in the studio. Hi, Sheng An, how are you? Hi, I'm good. Thanks. Good morning or good evening, I'd rather say. Yeah. It is a bit like that. Uh, I think for yeah. listeners to tuning in, just to give them some context, you're in Shista, uh, just out of Stockholm. I think it's about a 15 to 20 minute drive out of Stockholm in the massive uh, Ericsson uh, uh, complex. Yes, I'm, I'm in the Arizona office uh, at the moment. Perfect. Uh, yeah. So it's about uh, probably about 8, uh, 8.30 a.m. at your end there on uh, February 13th. It's about uh, 6.30 uh, p.m. here in Sydney. Uh, I understand it's pretty cold there at the moment. Yeah, it's uh, it's zero, you know, like uh, minus one zero. So um, cannot complain. Has been colder before. <laughs> wow, zero. That's um, for Australians, zero yeah. degrees is frightening. It, I think it got to about 26 or 27 degrees centigrade here today. So it was hot. We were sweating. Well, thank you so wow. much for joining me in the studio today. So uh, just a little bit of background on you quickly. I mean, you've had an amazing background. I just want to share some of the amazing things you've done, and then we'll dive straight into a bit of background on you personally. You, um, you've attended uh, the KTH Royal Institute of Technology and attained uh, a couple of degrees there. You did a Master of Science in Engineering and Physics and Applied Maths. You did a Master of Science in the field of Physical Engineering and Applied Maths. That's, that's mind-boggling. Uh, you also then went on to do an Executive Master's of Business uh, on something called a Global Track, which I'll ask you about in a second, at the uh, China-Europe uh, International Business School. Uh, you've done an amazing amount of volunteer work, but one of my favorites that I saw there was uh, you were a volunteer board member on the board of the uh, Swedish School in Beijing and China, working on the development of the Swedish School in Beijing. You've done a lot of public speaking and uh, authorship. Uh, I think a couple that jumped out at me was uh, in 2015, I remember you uh, keynoted at the OpenStack Summit in Vancouver in British Columbia. And more recently, last year in 2017, uh, you keynoted the IoT Week in Geneva in Switzerland. Uh, how do you squeeze all that into a day-to-day -day, uh, uh, with your busy life? Uh, well, thanks for the great uh, introduction. Um, yes, my life has been, uh, you know, busy, but then I truly love everything I do, uh, especially my job at Arizona. Uh, I've been with Arizona for, let's say, 22 years now. Uh, I do love, you know, every day uh, to come to work. And also, I have been passionate truly in uh, in study as well. Like, um, uh, you know, the background, like you described, that I came to Sweden when I was 19 uh, with a passion that I want to learn more about what's happening outside China. Um, so that has given me not only the opportunity to uh, study and to work uh, abroad, but rather have um, basically changed my life. Uh, yeah. You've you've had a, a strong interest in STEM, though. What uh, what drove you at an early age to, uh, to to sort of gravitate towards the whole science, technology, engineering, math sort of spaces that we sort of refer to as STEM now? I think for me, it has been uh, rather natural 
voice since both my parents are very much into, let's say, mathematics and physics. And I think since I was young, for me, the choice was rather simple. Uh, like I have been a true believer of, uh, let's say, learning new things, especially I was very passionate about uh, mathematics. So one of the reasons driving me coming to Sweden was to be able to learn more about what has been basically, you know, um, um, taught, uh, you know, about mathematics, about engineering here uh, in the westward. Uh, since China has been closed, I would say when I came here in 91, China has been rather closed for a rather long time. And that was uh, excitement for me to come out. And that was also excitement for me to be able to join a company like Arizona, then, uh, like uh, four years after I came to Sweden, yeah. You, you mentioned both your parents were uh, in, in maths and physics. Uh, were they in academia or, or um, how, did, how did they come about to drive you into that space and build your passion for it? They both have been working uh, in the engineering field. Uh, my dad has been a CEO for for uh, oil company in China, so that he was working on you know encouraging girls uh, learning you know the the right topics, especially mathematics and physics. So I have been fortunate to have um, uh, my father to support me since I was young, and also about learning English. He was very also passionate about saying that I need to learn other languages. Not only just knowing what's happening in China, yeah. Wow, it's um, that's an ama- it's. I mean, there's a lot of luck in there in many ways, and that we're born to our parents yeah. and we don't choose them, right? But uh, actually, I, I had a conversation recently with someone that I won't name because they'll kill me. But uh, they were surprised when I told them that China is the largest English-speaking nation in the world. They refused to believe it until they did a web search on it. You mentioned you, you're about 19 when you sort of made the shift from China to Sweden. Uh, tell us a bit about yeah. what sort of drove that. How did that come about? Uh, that was, uh, you know, I have been studying two years already in China in the engineering, uh, let's say, subject. But then for me, I think, uh, as I told you, that I was very curious uh, about what's happening um, outside the world, <laughs> let's say, outside China. So I have, I had the possibility to apply for a scholarship. So uh, I got that chance to come to Sweden, even though I didn't know much about Sweden. Uh, so that was a rather bold choice I made. Uh, you can say that people are rather surprised when they hear the story, which I can tell today then. But I think for me at that time, when I was really young, my uh, desire for learning, my desire for trying new things uh, has, um, you know, made my, let's say, choice rather easy. Uh, That was tough, though, the first two years here in Sweden. Uh, the biggest challenge for me is not was not the language, was rather the freedom, uh, the freedom to choose, the freedom to choose what you want to learn, the freedom to choose, you know, what you want to study, and the freedom to choose, you know, who you want to be friend with, and all those, uh, all those freedoms was overwhelming for me the first two years. We take a lot in the West for granted, and and this is something I speak with my kids a lot about. I spend time talking to them about the sorts of things that you're talking about, because I grew up in Papua New Guinea and then the Solomon Islands, and we had a very diverse and multicultural world, and lots of, of stories similar to what you've just described, where when people came to those regions and had these freedoms... Uh, it was like they're reborn because uh, they'd never had that before. And I imagine uh, the number of cultural shocks, if you'll pardon the pun, of going to uh, Sweden, where it's, it's, I imagine it's a little bit colder, you've got a whole new language and, and all these freedoms. What was that sort of like, you know, the first year? What, uh, what were some of the highlights when you sort of got the point where you realised that you were sort of in a space where you now could do these things? Yeah, I think uh, you're definitely right. Like uh, my first impression of Sweden is, of course, the language, right? The Swedish language. 
was not uh, at all familiar with. So, of course, when you are around, uh, you know, just going to the subway here in, in Stockholm and, you know, listen to people around you. I remember my first day here was uh, all overwhelming, like uh, all these impressions, the new impression you, you, you receive. But then when I start learning Swedish, and I think after a few months, I, I start realizing I actually could understand people around me when they speak Swedish. That was a great moment when I realized, um, you know, wow, I'm actually part of the conversation. I'm a part of the, the context. And also the time when I could read, the, you know, my first book in Swedish without, you know, I truly understand the story. That was just like, um, you know, uh, a door opening or, or rather uh, a new window open, like you're saying, uh, like you said, like, an, uh, you know, uh, a newborn experience, right? Yeah. So you've had a, yeah. a very technical, I mean, you've done a lot of uh, stuff around engineering and maths and physics, as you spoke about. You've done a lot of technical stuff. You've had roles like IT, uh, system and server support. You did an SAP, uh, SAP implementation, which uh, most people don't survive. So well done on that. You've done a bunch of consultancy work and advisory work, particularly around network services. You were the CTO, the chief technology officer for uh, Ericsson Taiwan in Taipei for a while there, I think about two and a half years. And then you moved into the cloud space. I'd love to sort of know the transition into that, what that happened in a minute. Um, I think you did about four years from memory as the director of cloud uh, back in Sweden, Stockholm. And uh, now you've got this exciting role for about six months, I think, is that uh, you, you actually are the head of the solution line for distributed cloud in Ericsson. Uh, is it the case that you've got this nice combination of, of I guess, engineering and math and, and technical skills, but also this, this you know, MBA and, and business experience, does that give you a competitive edge in many ways? Because you can sort of, you've got a foot in both camps and so you can see both sides of the coin and see where everyone's coming from, from business driver as well as a technical driver? Yeah, I think the reason, by the way, like you're definitely right. So when I decided to try to, you know, to take the EMBA was very much because the motivation, like you said, I felt like I have had very, uh, you know, technical background at the engineering degree. And I have been working at that time already in Arizona for more than 10 years with rather engineering type oriented uh, activities. I do feel like I want to learn more about, uh, you know, management, about business uh, related things. So therefore, by the way, I applied for uh, Ericsson scholarship. So uh, 2004, uh, I got the Ericsson scholarship uh, called the Mal Marcos Wallenberg's um, scholarship for encouraging Ericsson employee who are eager to, to learn new things. So that... Um, wow. Uh, then, Congratulations. Uh, yeah. so I got Yes, so I got that scholarship, and then I was planning to, by the way, study in Sweden first in the in the Stockholm Economics School uh, School of Economics. I applied for that, and then at the same time, I was offered to go to Arizona, Japan, from wow. Sweden, uh, to be the the senior expert to help three uh, G rollouts in Arizona, Japan. Uh, then I had a little bit of conflict in terms of timing, but then Arizona at that time told me that I could basically study the EMB anywhere in the world. I don't need to only study in Sweden. And so therefore, I decided to go to Japan. And later on, the reason why I took EMBA in China is because after two and a half years in Japan, uh, 3G rollout was very successful. China was very eager to get me there. So Arizona, China really wanted me there. So therefore, we decided to move the family over from Japan to China. And then I have to take my scholarship because uh, it was already two years after I received that. Therefore, the decision was to study in China then. So I took uh, this uh, EMBA class, English class, in the China European International Business School. Uh, by the way, there was, you know, a great experience, two years, uh, part-time. 
uh, EMBA education. So that opened the world uh, for me also, like not only, but before that, my world is, was only aerosol. Uh, but after that was so much about, you know, all the great things other people, you know, around, uh, you know, the, the, the word outside Ericsson was also very exciting. So you, I had the classmates who are starting companies, you know, almost like, you know, you have new companies, new ideas every day, right? Right. That was also the, the right timing in China, because like 2006, 2007, that was just, uh, you know, the great time in China. So, like, I have colleagues, I have studies, I have, uh, let's say, classmates who have been, uh, you know, very much uh, the, the, the ones who are driving the Alibaba, Tencent, and um, Baidu, those developments. So, um, wow. so, it was an exciting time, yeah. It, it was. It's, uh, in many ways, that, that whole period, it's sort of just past 2005. I think we sort of had... Uh, yeah. for, for a lot of the Western world, we had the early, you know, 2001 through 2003, and then it boomed in 2004. But it sort of once it hit China, it, again, it was like the scale is so much larger. And so that would have been an amazing experience. And, and to be able to do an NBA in the middle of that is uh, quite astounding. Uh, the rollout of 3G must have been an interesting challenge, though. What, what were some of the things you faced in the, the process, I guess, not just the technology, but just getting the businesses across the line, you know, the partners, the infrastructure, the integration uh, what sort of challenges did you face in just getting 3G rollout happening? Yeah, I think you're definitely right. So far, uh, I think 3G around the beginning 2000, like the challenge was the license fee was way too expensive for majority operators. Like uh, then the, the possibility for us to turn around was rather around 2004, for example, like in Japan. Uh, there you actually, Japan had a special situation when they had the second generation, the PDC technology was, uh, you know, on the way to be phased out. So therefore, the Japanese, uh, let's say, operators have uh, an urgent need to find a new technology. So 3G technology just came on time. So therefore, I think our focus at that time from Arizona side to say, let's help the Japanese customer to speed up their 3G rollout was very right. And uh, that was an exciting time for me when I moved uh, to Japan 2004. We could, for example, like migrate uh, one million subscriber every month from the 2G PDC system into the 3G network, right? And right. that was the time Soft, SoftBank was very much, you know, the SoftBank was formed in 2006. So the speed was amazing. And you're right, like in terms of technology, I think that um, we have already had had the right solution at that time. It's just the, the business decision. You know, we need to have players like SoftBank you know, the, the, the CEO of SoftBank was very clear that he wants to phase out 2G network and then he wants to get the 3G network ready. Uh, so once you make your mind and then, you know, things uh, happen really fast. Yeah. Well, I remember that period. I, I did a lot of consulting to banks around that period and a lot of the banks had very large staff headcounts, uh, particularly on a global scale, and they were just coping with the transition from sort of radio handsets uh, sort of the, in, the, in the early 90s, I guess, through to the late 90s. And then you know, what you described as PDC, the personal digital cellular technology, yes. which was essentially 2G for many, I guess, many years. Um, yep. I, I do remember doing some work uh, in, in Tokyo and, and, in fact, uh, getting stuck in Reader Airport a couple of nights on cold nights where I couldn't get my flights. Uh, and I remember reading that they hit around something like, oh, it really stretches my memory now. I think it was like 80 million subscribers or something that they sort of peaked out. Yep. They, could, they could drive at PDC and the network just couldn't carry anymore for a bunch of reasons. Yeah. And I do remember that whole investment that SoftBank made. It was a, 
it hit the media at the time because it was one of those things where there was a bullying decision. We're going from here to there and we're doing it now, right? So I can only right. imagine what that was like on the, uh, on the bleeding edge of that shift uh, because once someone at that level makes a decision to move, you're kind of sprinting to keep up with them, aren't you? Yes, yes. So now I, I tuned into your uh, – now you're the head of solution line for distributed cloud at Ericsson now, and this is an exciting role. I'd like to get into that. But before we do, I tuned and watched you live, and you were amazing. The whole team were amazing for the live uh, broadcast from the Ericsson studio in Schuster in Sweden for the Turn On 5G uh, launch. Uh, tell us a little bit about that. That must have been a good fun event to do for uh, an hour or so online with Facebook Live. Yes, that was a great experience and it was really fun. And the Tandang 5G effort has been a great effort, a team effort. We've been working uh, for, ma- for a long time to get um, everything in, uh, in, in place. But I think that was uh, great that we got um, you know, fantastic uh, you know, feedback and received a lot of uh, great um, uh, you know, comments uh, since the, the live um, uh, the launch then, yeah. I think the great thing for me was that watching it and watching the hundreds of people sort of tune in uh, every few minutes until I got thousands of people and then it just exploded. Uh, And then the flow on through social media, I saw people chatting on LinkedIn groups and LinkedIn directly and posting screen shares and then certainly Twitter. There was like an informal Twitter chat that followed. Uh, People have been waiting for somebody to sort of put the hand up and and say, okay, we're turning on 5G and here it is. And and so you almost started that conversation that had been sort of sitting there waiting to happen and, and you kicked it off. Um, but underpinning all of this is the Ericsson Distributed Cloud. So I'm really keen to get you to tell us in brief, what is the Ericsson Distributed Cloud? We've heard about OpenStack. We've heard about all kinds of technologies. Yep. What is the Ericsson Distributed Cloud? Yep. So the Ericsson Distributed Cloud is very much um, related to the effort I think we have been doing for years, like you mentioned about OpenStack. So what we're trying to now to introduce this uh, new concept, uh, Distributed Cloud, is very much to combine the best of telecom uh, solutions and the best of the cloud technologies, and including especially OpenStack in that context. So our vision with Distributed Cloud is to help our customer to be able to, especially the telco, tel, telco let's say, op, telecom operators, so that they will be able to leverage their infrastructure, which has been deployed as distributed from day one, right? If you look at the, 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 the telecom infrastructure, so that we with the distributed cloud solution, we'll be able to add the cloud capability anywhere in the so-called distributed infrastructure, which operators are having already today, so that they basically can offer uh, a cloud-based solution anywhere uh, in their infrastructure and to run any workload and with uh, you know a unified uh, orchestration solution. When I was reading a number of the blogs that have been put out, I, and I watched a couple of videos that you did personally uh, recently around this topic, for a lot of the operators that are out there, you've had you know decades of, ex- of working closely with some of the, well, all the biggest brands, frankly. What this seems to mean to me is they don't have to do a full refresh and, and sort of you know churn and burn. They can take the current infrastructure and essentially sort of you know in Star Trek terms, borg the hardware and just start to roll out small implementations and then grow and scale out so that as they are signing on these these millions of subscribers or switching them, your platform can distribute and, and, and shift into their infrastructure. They can use existing you know, compute and network and storage and scale out. They can probably drop it in in, in you know, full rack form. But is it correct to think that they can kind of, they can reutilize their current, uh, I guess, sunk costs and existing compute and, and data center infrastructure rather than having to throw it all out and start from scratch? 
Uh, definitely, definitely. I mean, the, the idea is exactly like you, you put there, like our uh, vision is to be able to help our operator customers to be able to leverage their existing investment. And besides, let's say, the infrastructure equipment, there is a lot of investment uh, our customers have been doing over years, like a power transmission, for example, to the sites. And then going back to your specific question, yes, like the existing investment they are doing, for example, on the equipment side, um, the ambition for us is to be able to utilize reuse. Uh, you know, we need to do a redimensioning basically of the current infrastructure. But then where do you put, uh, you know, the, the new capabilities and in what context, I guess, we have actually different type of solutions we can look into then for each of the customers. And all this uh, SDN and FE deployment we have been doing with uh, potential delete customers, those investments are very much um, part of the, those components we are we are launching them as a part of a distributed cloud solution right so and I'm, I'm sure if somebody's rolling out new infrastructure in a new location i mean there are lots of spaces around south pacific southeast asia and certainly even in australia regional remote areas that are just not connected yet or they want to add i'm sure they could drop in whole new infrastructure but i think there's a lot of interest in the telco space to, to get another roi on their investment because there's a, a huge sunk cost in rolling out the transition three to four yes. g and then now four to five I, I was interested to read, uh, and also I heard you talking about it on the live uh, uh, Facebook live thing uh, the other night when I tuned in, because uh, it was about one o'clock in the morning my time. You specifically talked about end-to-end -end orchestration, and um, yeah. I made a note about it because I really wanted to ask you about it. We hear about orchestration, we hear about you know DevOps fail, fail fast. We hear about you know uh, Vagrant and Docker and Kubernetes, and certainly in, in OpenStack we've got Heat for uh, you know Heat orchestration and scripts. But I was really interested in, in um, the key differentiations around where, where the telco piece is. I mean, when people think about large brands coming to something like OpenStack, because OpenStack, uh, you know, from my understanding, is, is effectively the largest open source project in the history of humankind. It's, it's a very unique project and the scale of it. And we've seen it in data centers and, and big public clouds. But when the telco space comes in, you operate at a whole different level of, I guess, high availability, right? I mean, sort of, you know, people talk about trying to get three nines in a public cloud, but Talking to one of your colleagues, Matt Carlson, in your R&D team, he was talking about five nines and trying to get six nines. What does that yep. mean in the context of end-to-end -end orchestration and trying to get that level of, of service level agreement in place, even if you're the first client yourselves internally? Right. So uh, exactly like uh, what, uh, you know, Matt has shared with you, like our focus working with, uh, let's say, you know, open source projects, especially like OpenStack, the focus has been to to help, let's say, the open source community to to understand the requirement from the telco side and to make, uh, to help the community to truly focus on solutions to, to be able to drive a high availability uh, and reliability type of solution. So the five nines, six nines, uh, and those definitions, like we also want to clarify, is not only about a certain hardware, like you actually need to have, you know, a lower downtime, but rather is end-to-end -end view, right? So when we talk about five nines or six nines, it's um, is it from, let's say, from the, the hardware you have, from the hot cost hardware layer, up to basically, you know, all these uh, different layers on the top until like the ap application itself, right? So there, there will be different intelligence. So the so-called end-to-end orchestration that definition is uh, our, let's say, um, solution about how you can define uh, intelligence in, let's say, on the infrastructure level, so that you were decided how you can, because the resources are virtualized, right, with the network function virtualization, with all this um, 
solution, we, we can decompose, let's say, network resources and re reform them when they are needed, right? So that capability has created that, uh, a huge demand that's saying we need to have uh, a much more intelligence in terms of knowing each network components uh, in the infrastructure so that they will understand a certain use case would have certain demand for where you should have those resources in the best possible way. Uh, so here we actually talk about to bring the intelligence into, let's say, the oral management orchestration of the network functions, rather. And then the network function is not only about a certain, let's say, uh, hardware software, but rather it's, um, let's say, it's, it's also about uh, the, the onboarding, the runtime performance of, of those resources, right? Yeah, and, and I guess we should probably put some context in this. I mean, people who haven't necessarily dealt with high availability, when we talk about, you know, five nines, we're talking about 99.999% availability, which from memory is something yeah. in the order of not, it's just under five and a half minutes a year, right? So I think it's like yep. not even 30 seconds a month. Uh, and, and right. you know, that's a couple hundred million, like what is it, seven or 800 milliseconds a day. So it's really not downtime. It's more about, I guess, um, you know, when we think about uh, people going to work and they're getting email and, and, and using a file server, a print server, they're worried about Monday to Friday, nine to five. If something breaks at one o'clock because someone updated a patch, then you're going to have an early lunch. But if you're talking about telco space, I, I was very interested to hear you talk about the, the shift between kind of what, you know, service level availability means. Because when we think about, you know, just getting a dial tone and the response time that you need to get a dial tone from one end to the other and, you know, call connect and, uh, you know, what will probably, I, I think for, some, for me anyway, for some of the biggest stuff that's around the 5G initiative, uh, you know, machine to machine and IoT, you know, autonomous cars, yep. uh, security, yep. and some of the really big stuff like, you know, manufacturing where you've got robots that weigh five tons moving things around. You've got, you know, or, autonomous vehicles, transport, logistics, aviation. I mean, uh, that's when it really gets to the point where you've got to get those, you know, six nines where it's, there really is no downtime. And I guess that's where the distributed com component comes in, doesn't it? Because you, even though, even with good hardware, with the decent you know servers and storage and network layers and multiple data centers, you've really got to get the distribution of that service delivery out and about. And I guess this is where, like in in, um, I remember reading about a thing called the Chaos Monkey at Netflix, where they deliberately engineered a script that would break random parts of the network. And people ask why. It was because if this script randomly broke things and they could engineer their network and infrastructure to keep delivering movies in real time and recover from that, then nothing the world could do to them could beat what they did to themselves. And uh, I imagine that's a similar challenge you have, and that is that you're going to have to deal with so many random potential outages and you know diggers digging cables up and still delivering services because there's a baby in the backseat of a car trying to navigate its way around the city. Uh, availability is a completely different context than the telco space, isn't it? It's particularly when you're trying to orchestrate that at a fully software-defined infrastructure layer. Yes, yes, very true. And that's exactly the challenge I think we have been uh, trying to, to resolve with, uh, let's say, with the virtualize, virtualization and technology, right? was, uh, by the way, very amazing. Like, um, you talk about the five nines and the, the downtime. Um, I forgot to mention, I actually did my sister's work in Ericsson uh, 22 years ago, exactly about uh, availability for um, for mobile infrastructure. Wow. At that time, by the way, yeah. But at that time already, like, we had a vision to have zero downtime. So very much like you describing that, you know, the vision has been, even though that we talk about five nines, but then we have been working on solutions like how can we achieve, how can we achieve this zero downtime type of uh, capability, exactly like you're describing that. Yeah. Yeah. Um, 
So, so now I think we actually are reaching to the point that with the software-defined infrastructure uh, solution, you know, we have a unique concept, by the way, called the port, the virtual port concept. And that's the part we have been working, by the way, with uh, with Intel for for the past years on that. How can you create a report concept so that the hardware you actually can virtualize the hardware resources in a much more efficient way, right? So that become another layer we can add on, uh, so that uh, the end-to-end -end, uh, availability can truly be achieved. Right. So the intelligence, yeah, the intelligence I'm talking about is like the intelligence on different layers, right? So when you have a virtualization capability on the, you know, the, the lower layer part, then the high layer should be able to understand what's happening. And, you know, that's, again, the real-time capability you're talking about, right? Yeah. The other thing I was really keen to get your insight on is, I mean, we hear about mobile edge computing, we hear about edge computing in general. Yeah. How does this, what you're doing around the, the, the 5G and IoT enablement within OpenStack, I mean, how, how is it different from, I guess, what a lot of people are doing around mobile edge computing and, and, and particularly edge computing as a general concept? Right. So, so um, excellent question, by the way. So, so edge computing uh, as a general concept, uh, I think we are positioning Distributed Cloud as our solution for edge computing, even though like we want to highlight that we are based the solution based on SD and NFE and the 3GPP edge computing, uh, not the mobile edge computing. So, by the way, the Etsy uh, MEC or Initially, it was called mobile edge computing, and later on now, I think they changed on phase two called the multi-access edge computing, right, in order to cover the Wi-Fi part as well. That's right. Uh, yep. with, yeah. So, so with that solution, we see the challenge, I, I think, from the beginning when they formed that, uh, let's say, consortium like 2014. The problem we see that is rather that that effort was very much to figure out how they can open up the the radio network resources and how they can create uh, APIs so third-party applications can can basically work together in the same infrastructure. Right. But with that, the price is saying you have to change your you, you, you know, network infrastructure, let's say telecom infrastructure. So we see that would be too expensive for our customer then, going back to the same thought we, we shared before then. So we have a different view on how the network architecture should look like. So therefore, Arizona has decided not to join Etsy MEC from the start. We're still having, you know, we are, of course, monitoring the activities there. And we are encouraging, of course, SEMEC to, to get closer with 3GPP edge computing because architecture thinking there, like with 3GPP uh, edge computing, when you have the local breakout, when you can separate the user plane from the control plane. And with that capability, that means that we can place the user plane you know, capability anywhere in the infrastructure. So yeah. therefore, there is no need for, you know, a new type of solution. There is no need for new type of equipment to be introduced into uh, into a network, right? And I guess this is something that a lot of people also don't necessarily always appreciate, that is when you get a brand like Ericsson that has very uh, deep pockets, wide resources, and, and, and some very big brains like yours apply to these things, uh, even though there are potentially competitive projects like the European Telecommunication Standards Institute's work with Red Hat and others, um, what tends to be the case is you've had this experience with the 3GPP that you established some time ago that already has the capability. So in, in many ways, I think they don't necessarily compete. They're simply looking yeah. at slightly different parts of the problem and eventually you'll come back together. But from my right. experience, when, when companies like Ericsson work on projects like OpenStack, what I see is that you're a complementary component. You're not really acting like a bully. You're trying to take over. You bring all this additional value in that you've applied it to your problem and being solved, but then you commit the code back up and everybody gets the benefit. 
Um, and I guess that's really part of the DNA of the organisation from what I've seen. Now, we've got an exciting thing coming up soon, and I believe you're going to be joining us with it. Um, 26th of February in Barcelona, uh, Mobile World Congress. Uh, I hear there's an exciting demo available on the Ericsson booth that's going to be, uh, uh, I think it's invitation only, but people can apply online. Uh, what can you tell us about the demo? Yes, so we will have uh, quite some demos related to distributed cloud in uh, in the Mobile World Congress uh, in the coming, let's say, very soon. And there we're going to demonstrate like the, the solutions I just described uh, to you that how we can help our telecom uh, customers to be able to have open platform solutions so that they can onboard third-party application very easily. So we're going to show some industrial use cases, uh, which including, like, I think my understanding now, there will be demos related to, to sorting and digging and then also, like, so manufacturing type use cases. We're also going to show certain, like, uh, content delivery, uh, delivery type of use cases, like how we can utilize um, augment reality and virtual reality uh, so that you can not only think have exciting, uh, you know, um, gaming experience, but also you can help, let's say, both the automotive industry and also the manufacturing industry to be much more efficient. I think augmented reality is going to be a big part of what you're, you're, you've got coming up. I remember talking to a couple of colleagues and we did some video uh, fireside chats and we talked about what uh, augmented um, uh, reality or, or AR is going to do. And uh, I, I see augmented reality being a very big uh, plus for you know a lot of these uh, very heavy industry spaces where particularly if you've got uh, three or four really expert lifelong domain expertise, uh, uh, SME subject matter experts, sitting in a central uh, location, but you've got second and third tier engineers running around on site and they can almost just you know, aim their phone at, at something like a mining environment or a piece of equipment and the augmented reality with the, the SME behind the call can sort of see the video and then have the augmented reality overlay with you know, diagrams and, and, and highlight the red button to push and, and you, know, you can end up with a very broad use of that technology in different spaces, automotive, et cetera, and, and also maybe you know, I guess uh, increased safety with that. Now, there's going to be a, I believe that now, if folk who are not attending Mobile World Congress, I've got a note here that uh, to mention that uh, there's going to be a live blog from the uh, Ericsson uh, Digital Live blog. Uh, so anyone who's listening and isn't going to be in Spain at uh, Barcelona uh, in the next couple of weeks, uh, you can tune in on the, if you just search for Ericsson Digital Live blog, you'll find it. Now, before we wrap up, what I'd love to do, uh, and I hope you don't mind me asking this, one of my favorite things to do, uh, Sheng An, is I'd like you to... Uh, envisage that I'm going to hand you a virtual crystal ball. I'd like you to quickly gaze into it. If you were going to imagine over the next 12 to 18 months, what big things are coming down the line? What, what's just over the horizon, either you personally, you professionally, in the company? What insights do you think uh, you can share around what's sort of just over the horizon and coming in the world and, and cloud and what's happening with all the space you're working in and, and particularly around the uh, 5G initiatives? Yes. Okay. By the way, I, I do love, uh, you know, Cristobal and then virtual Cristobal is even better. So like, uh, <laughs> great question. Yeah. Like uh, what's going to happen 18 months ahead? Um, as I mentioned, I think we we have uh, been, you know, working on this distributed cloud solution for actually quite a long time. And we are really excited to start doing, uh, you know, more customer engagements. So we have been having, you know, uh, trials and, and um 
you know, uh, proof of concept type of uh, discussions with some lead customers. So coming 18, uh, you know, 12, 18 months, uh, our focus will be, there will be a lot of like, uh, you know, not only demos, but true life, let's say, proof of concept type effort we, we, we want to work on uh, with our customers, in particular related to use cases. For example, like the, the AR comments you just made, like we have done, you know, uh, detailed studies about how AR technology could be applied to manufacturing, uh, you know, factories, how you can save cost, right? So we want to be able to demonstrate the benefits of uh, having the cloud capability close enough to the, to the user then and help our customer to figure out the, the business case. And I think that will be the, you know, the exciting time for us to understand uh, how, you know, we can benefit from distributed cloud solution and how 5G truly can be, you know, turned on even faster with this capability. Well, that's a very exciting note to wrap up on. Uh, Sheng and you, you're the Solution Line Head for Distributed Cloud and Ericsson Business Area Digital Services. It's been such a pleasure to have time with you chatting away and thanks for joining me in the studio. By the sounds of things, we've got a very exciting 12 to 18 months ahead of us and beyond with the 5G initiatives and all the work you're working on. Thanks for your time. Yeah, thank you. Thank you very much.